Hello and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information and advisory services provider for emerging market executives. We partner with business leaders at over 200 multinationals by providing them with proprietary research, analytical tools, and data that help power their emerging market business strategies. The focus of today's podcast is effective distribution management in Vietnam. My name is Richard Leggett, and I'm the CEO of Frontier Strategy Group. I'm joined today in studio by Adam Jarzik, FSG's practice leader for Southeast Asia. As a reminder, this research and all of our content is available via our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com or via your FSG client iPad application. Adam, welcome. Thanks, Rich. I should mention to our listeners that you're based out of our Singapore office, and so it's a real treat to actually have you here in the studio for a, a live discussion. We don't get to do that very often. No, we don't. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's get started. Vietnam is a market that we've seen growing interest among our client base, given the strong focus that our multinational clients have on ASEAN right now, and also the growth profile of Vietnam. And at the same time, compared to other ASEAN markets, our clients are most heavily dependent on distributors in Vietnam for revenues and margins, making today's topic of effective distribution management critically important. You start your analysis highlighting three key issues that make distribution in Vietnam more challenging than other markets. Could you walk us through these issues? And let's start with the first one, which is the regional division that occurs between the North and the South. Sure thing. So in order to, to do this research, we actually spent some time not just interviewing executives in the region and, and regional headquarters in ASEAN, but also going and speaking to executives and distributors in uh, Vietnam itself. And what came out in almost every conversation that I had while I was there was the fact that there was a significant cultural divide between northern Vietnam and southern Vietnam. And that's despite the fact that the country is unified. Yes, it is despite the fact that the country is unified. You know, it's, it's really important to understand that, that these cultural differences are not new. Uh, they did not simply emerge as a result of uh, the partition of Vietnam. That They're actually uh, historic in nature. I may digress. The Chinese have a saying, uh, the the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. In other (laughs) words, those who are far away from the central government have a little more latitude to act and very often are are more commercially oriented. That's definitely true in Vietnam's case. The Southerners were farther away from the centralized Confucian government, uh, had more latitude to operate, were much more outwardly oriented, commercially oriented, and it really showed in their culture prior to partition. Now, of course, when Vietnam was split into two countries, Communist North and the market-oriented South, uh, these differences were amplified. And despite the fact that the country was reunified, they were not eliminated by any stretch of the imagination. Those, those differences still exist. And probably will for some time. The second issue you talk about in terms of the distributor landscape being more challenging is the immaturity of that landscape. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I think it's important to understand that Vietnam's market was only recently liberalized, right? It wasn't until Duy Mui of you know, the, the late 80s that you actually saw Vietnam's market open back up. And as a result, companies in Vietnam simply have not had nearly as much time to become sophisticated, to expand their reach, to build the capital base and the human capital necessary to really operate sophisticated businesses in the region. Uh, This is particularly true when it comes to distribution, because distribution was not open to foreign companies until relatively recently. In particular, uh, many of the liberalizations came after Vietnam joined the WTO, which was in 2007. 
And so, yes, the landscape there is quite underdeveloped. Uh, If I may quote one executive that we spoke to, Vietnamese distributors are more like Cambodian and Myanmar distributors than Thai and Malay distributors. Just in terms of their maturity spectrum. Yes. Third challenge you highlight is, uh, in terms of the backdrop, is the credit environment. Talk us through this one. Sure. So Vietnam right now is... uh, in the midst of a significant credit crunch. And this is not new. It's been going on for quite some time. If you look at the beginning of last year, for example, credit growth was basically zero, nil. And a lot of it's wrapped up in the problems that they have in their financial systems um, or in their financial system. The banks have lots of cross holdings. They were loaning to uh, state-owned enterprises prior to the financial crisis that were not utilizing capital well. And when the financial crisis struck and the hugely inefficient SOEs struggled to repay their loans, credit dried up uh, and has pretty much stayed dried up for quite a while. It's gotten particularly bad recently, though. And so you have distributors in a really tough spot, right? So basically, they can go to the bank to get money, but... Uh, the, the interest rates are very, very high. And frankly speaking, many of the banks won't even loan to them. And so they're capital constrained. This situation has been made worse by the fact that many multinationals now are tightening their credit terms as they're looking to increase their profitability, increase their cash position, or improve their cash position. And uh, the distributors, of course, they can't pass on. They're stuck in the middle. Exactly. So that's where they are. And, uh, you know, we talk a little bit later in the report about how that situation doesn't just damage distributors. It also damages their multinational partners. And do you see that credit challenging environment getting better? Or is it is it kind of just the status quo of doing business in Vietnam? It could get better. Uh, but there's no guarantee that it will. In order for it to get better, Vietnam's going to need to seriously reform its financial system. It's going to need to, the government's going to need to take on vested interests, particularly in state-owned enterprises within its banks, and uh, push through some very difficult reforms. The, the signs have not been positive on that front. In China, we, we have a shadow banking system that sort of helps deal with some of these issues. Is there a shadow banking system in Vietnam that we should be aware of? We certainly haven't heard of it, at least not to the same extent as you've seen in, in China, definitely. In fact, what we hear from distributors is that they don't really have that many other places to go unless they're willing to accept ridiculous interest rates that they just don't have the financial wherewithal to deal with. Okay. Kind of setting these three issues as the backdrop, you highlight six tactics that uh, multinationals can deploy. And you go into some detail on each of them, and we won't have time to cover all six. But I thought it might be interesting if we take kind of one one tactic for each of the challenge areas uh, and maybe talk a little bit about that. So why don't we start the, the first one being our first challenge, which was the regional division between North and South. What can a multinational do to kind of combat that challenge? Well, I think the the most important thing that a multinational can do is recognize the regional differences and account for them in terms of its choice of distributors, how hard it pushes the distributors, what sort of timelines it lays out, et cetera, uh, for its distribution partners. I mean, effectively, if if you're planning to take a distributor who's only uh, strong in the north or the south and Uh, have them expand into the region that they are much less developed in, where they don't have the connections, they don't have the the experience to uh, to really drive a solid business 
in the short term and expect them to be able to do that at the same pace and at the same cost that they would be able to do in you know, many other countries, not just in Asia, but across emerging market space, then you're setting yourself up for disaster and you're setting your, your distributor up to look bad. So essentially, uh, either decide to localize your distribution partner uh, in terms of the, the uh, north versus south and, and different regions within the country uh, or be more patient. Exactly. Okay. The second one is distributor maturity. And what are some counterbalancing strategies or give us one tactic that you've seen uh, in your interviews uh, multinationals deploy effectively? Sure. You know, many of the distributors, uh, particularly uh, at the lower levels, they don't think strategically about uh, how they're managing their finances, which is a huge problem given the credit environment. Uh, So any help that you can give them on that front is hugely useful. Uh, One thing that we recommend companies do is train their distributors in simple but strategic collections processes to improve their accounts receivables position. because That that can give them a lot more capital. They can then reinvest in the business and used to accelerate their growth. And how about tied to that then is the tough credit environment itself. And so what's a tactic that you've seen work effectively to counterbalance that? Sure. So very often what's what's happened in Vietnam within this tight credit environment is that salespeople who are incentivized on how much they sell to the distributors end up pushing their product into the channel, um, regardless of whether there's actual demand for it at the end customer level. And so distributors end up getting hit by a double whammy. Not only do they have less capital available for operations due to tightened credit, but then they also have to deal with heightened inventories, which drags their capital down even more. And sets them up for disappointing future performance because they've got to to drain that inventory before they they can purchase more. Exactly. It it also inflates uh, the perceived end demand or the end demand that the company itself perceives and it perpetuates the problem. So we recommend that companies consider incentivizing their salespeople on uh, how much is actually being sold out from the distributor. That way, the distributor is not getting loaded down with excess inventories. And as a company, you also have a much better idea of what the end customer demand actually is. And we've seen that technique deployed pretty effectively in some other emerging markets as well. Um, Let's turn our attention now to the future and the future of the operating environment for multinationals and distributors in Vietnam. And I think it's helpful, uh, as it often is, in order to understand the future, to have a little bit of an understanding of the current environment that we're operating in today. And I thought it was interesting. You highlighted a few bottlenecks um, that companies face. One is infrastructure. One is the customs regime. And then the third, kind of related a bit to the customs regime, is what you refer to as T-money or facilitation <laughs> payments. In, in New Jersey, where I grew up, we call those bribes. So um, maybe you could elaborate on that a bit. Sure. Vietnam... Uh, as anyone who's been there uh, will tell you, it does not have particularly good infrastructure in place. And this is true pretty much across the board. Uh, the only place where Vietnam compares reasonably favorably to the other major emerging ASEAN markets is in terms of its airports. But even there, it's not that great. You see poor rail, poor road, poor port infrastructure. And if you look at how that impacts companies who are trying to get goods to market, uh, it's, it's, it's staggering. Um, It tends to come in particularly around Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City in terms of getting goods into the ports and then shipping them through inland water transport or along roads into town where we're talking in aggregate um, as a result of highway congestion, tens of millions of dollars in both the north and the south. And of course, that that impacts companies operating there. In terms of the customs environment, just briefly, uh, this is the one area where literally everybody has problems. Uh, The Vietnamese customs officials are not particularly consistent. 
Um, they can be quite arbitrary. And even if you take a single set of goods through the same port and deal with the same customs officials, we've heard that very often you can get different results. That's hugely frustrating for anybody who's operating in the country. Uh, and, of course, tea money, uh, bribes, as they call them in Jersey. Uh, this is not unique to uh, to Vietnam, certainly, but there are some interesting figures on that available. The World Bank actually estimates that facilitation payments add 13 to 15 percent to the price of importing uh, or exporting a container, uh, which substantially increases the cost of doing business in the country. What are some of the signposts uh, or areas that MNC should monitor in terms of the future distribution environment and landscape, uh, especially against the backdrop of infrastructure challenges, customs, and uh, and the facilitation payments or the T-money? Certainly. Uh so we actually highlight in the report three areas that companies should be monitoring. The first is port infrastructure. The second is freight corridors. And the third is trade agreements. Um, let me just briefly go through. I won't go into a huge amount of depth, but we, we outline in detail which signpost companies should be watching. In terms of ports, Vietnam right now has extremely inefficient ports. And there are areas where the government could invest and free up uh, some some pretty tight bottlenecks. Uh, it's just a question of whether they're actually going to be able to uh, gather the political will to do so. The signpost that we identify there is a port called La Quien in the north. It is desperately needed, and the government knows it. So it's just a question of whether they can actually deliver. In terms of the freight corridors, um, Vietnam has several freight corridors. We highlight four in the report. Uh, and we also uh, go into detail about what to watch in each of the freight corridors. Uh, that said, broadly speaking, uh, what we're talking about here is uh, the, the channels in terms of road, rail, and ocean shipping that companies need to be watching to determine how the logistics landscape is changing. Uh, and finally, when it comes to trade agreements, uh, we highlight three uh, different trade agreements. There's the ASEAN Economic Community, the AEC, the Vietnam-EU Free Trade Agreement, as well as the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, all of which have the potential to uh, have a pretty big impact on companies operating in Vietnam on how goods get in and out of the market uh, and are shipped within the country to some degree. So we discuss in some detail what companies need to be watching uh, for all three of those trade agreements as well. And we've obviously written a lot as a firm about uh, about those trade agreements, and so there's a lot of supporting resources there. In terms of some of those signposts, what's the time frame roughly you see movement in terms of, because some of these feel like they could take a really long time, and others feel like you might see sooner movement. Definitely. So uh, the first one to come about is likely to be the Vietnam-EU free trade agreement. Um, that may happen by the end of the year. There's certainly been a lot of good noise on both sides in terms of that uh, or the negotiations there. So it's definitely something to watch. Next up on the list would be the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There's a lot of disagreement uh, about when this is actually going to go through. Certainly a lot of, uh, to be honest, skepticism in Asia. I'd say there's more skepticism in Asia than there is in the U.S. on this front. But but it is something that the, the United States has shown seriousness of intent around. Uh, and, and the U.S. is really the one driving this. So if they can push it through, fantastic. Uh, I should add a side note on this. We'll see if Vietnam actually gets in. Um, that, that's something else to monitor. Uh, but, but that's one that uh, is more likely to have an end date. Uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, the ASEAN Economic Community is, you know, they've said that it, it should be done by to the end of 2015. 
that's unlikely to happen, just being completely honest. And we go into detail about why that is in, in a couple of our reports. But what you need to know is that the ASEAN economic community is not – uh, you know, a policy push that will end at the end of 2015. It's an right, it's a beginning, uh, basically. Exactly, it's a beginning, and so this is something to just watch over the course, not just of the next 12 to 24 months, but over the next three to five years. Great, Adam. Thanks so much for the time and the fascinating insights. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you here in the studio. So hopefully we can we can do that again together soon. A- as a reminder, you can speak to Adam or any member of the FSG APAC research team at any time by scheduling time via your FSG client relationship director. You can also access Adam's report as well as all of our APAC research, leading indicator data, and all of the FSG content on our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. This concludes our podcast. We wish you great outperformance across your emerging markets portfolio.